Greetings, future fossils. Michael Garfield here with another episode of the podcast that explores our place in time. And what better way to characterize this precise moment in the flow of moments than by discussing the philosophical quandaries posed us by our recent and deepening immersion in digital media and the virtual realities that they yield to us. You know, it's easy to think that we are simply making these spaces, but as we shape our tools, our tools shape us. At least that's what Joseph Campbell said, and I agree. And so there is this sense in which the frontiers of virtual reality are not pure manifestations of our godlike creative potential, but in fact create us. The mysteries of this new mode of being, which in many ways is actually the same mode of being that we have always known, simply represented to us in new forms. This inquiry is the domain of the artist and one of the greatest artists that I know exploring the questions of our new artificial digital environment is Daniel Rosenberg or Dada Ra, an Amsterdam-based transmedia wizard whose work often centers around a satirical, dark, but playful, interactive invitation into the questions. I met Daniel at Burning Man in 2011 when he was examining our relationship to money and to value with his project, The Exchange Abition Bank. I'll post a link to my coverage of that particular project in the show notes. His latest project is another Burning Man interactive installation, and it's so fascinating that I decided to expedite this episode and get this up online as soon as I possibly could. But before we get started, a quick note that Future Fossils is a listener-supported show, and if you like what you hear and you believe in the value of these conversations, then there are a number of ways that you can show your appreciation and help me continue to produce these sustainably. One of those is by supporting it on Patreon with a monthly donation. That also helps me find time to work on my book, How to Live in the Future, which I'm writing in public, and you can find the first four chapters of that book online already. And Patreon subscribers also get access to a a lot of other stuff, including music and writing and artwork and some physical swag. A special shout out to Liz Fisher for being the latest supporter of this work on Patreon. Thank you, Liz! But if you're not part of the bourgeoisie and can afford to give to $5, $10 a month, that's totally fine because the future that I'm dreaming is one in which money is a last resort and all of us are immeasurably wealthy in our friendships and social relations. So if you like this show, you can help get it into the ears of other people who will appreciate it by subscribing. We're on iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play. If you want to take a moment to leave a review, that's hugely helpful. If you share it with a friend who will enjoy this conversation, that's great as well. And if you want to keep it to yourself, then tough shit, because in fact, the internet is a giant copying machine, so it's not really up to us. It's published, it's out there, and there's nothing we can do about it until a solar flare destroys civilization. Anyway, I'm super excited to share this episode with you. I'm super glad that you're listening, and I hope that you're enriched by this profound and thoughtful exchange with Dada Ra about how technology is changing our understanding of reality and realities. Enjoy. All right, welcome. Daniel I'll Rosenberg. Put my, I'll put my phone away. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, good call. So, yeah, man, I'm glad to have you on the show. It's it's an exciting time to be alive. It's an exciting project that you're working on, and I'm I'm glad that we get to discuss this stuff because I just finished reading your interview with Keyframe Entertainment on Reality Sandwich. 
And this project that you're working on, the uh, the Solop Mission project for Burning Man this year, is exploring some really interesting questions, as I feel your work always has. But um, I don't know. Why don't we start with a little bit of background and detail about this project and what inspired or motivated you to take on these particular questions? Um, yeah, the start, that seems like ages ago, but I guess that was not even half a year ago. Uh, it was a period I twice, I think like I always, I live in the now, uh, I don't know what the now means, but it's just like, I know some people plan stuff ahead for years, but I, I, I don't even, uh, yeah, you can't show it, but I mean, this is my watch. It doesn't, it's just a circle. So it means it's always now. And when you want to do something. I always feel our, our life is changing so rapidly, our planet, everything is just, we don't know where it's going, but we kind of can figure out a little bit where it is now. But in the now, so I think like six months ago, um, I don't know, I was in this kind of period. I don't know if you have those periods, but I mostly do a project. And then I uh, either destroy it or I just put an end to it or uh, I'm done with it. And then uh, there's this, I don't know, it's not a black hole, but it's kind of a white hole where I literally am trapped and I have no clue where I want to go or what I want to do. And uh, then I had a few discussions and I think everything, there's this serendipity, which I love. You talk with someone, something happens. And then um, one of the last discussions was a chat I had with James Hanusa, who's been involved with Burning Man for a while and he's now very much into VR. And he said, like, wouldn't you be interested to do something? Or we talked about doing something with VR, about VR, whatever, at Burning Man. And that kind of totally, uh, I think that's always the moment I have when I work on something that you feel like, yes. But once you feel like, yes, I'm going to do this, I still had no clue wherever this would be going. And I started reading. Uh, that was actually the best part, I think, about this project that I started reading again. I just, I guess when uh, I'm a dad and uh, I do a lot of projects, I don't have television and it's like time is a choice, but I guess for a while my choice was to not read. And um, yeah, then I started reading books um, like that were dealing with virtual reality. That was just to get into the mindset of it all. I read Ready Player One by Ernest Klein. I read Neuromancer by William Gibson. I read Snowcrest by Neil Stephenson. And I think after reading those books, then I just, I went through a lot of VR experiences. I visited VR hackathons. I just, I don't know, it was like truly, because when, uh, as you read, uh, when I write about this project, it's like there's this new unknown territory where we're going. But it truly felt for me like I was going into this unknown and I was going to discover something like a new project, a new idea, whatever, but I had no clue. And that's a very... It's a very strange feeling, especially when you're already busy for like a month or two months and you literally have no clue if you're going to find anything. But deep inside, you know that you'll stumble upon this kind of great idea, but you don't know where it is. But you know that it is somewhere. Yeah. So it's it's in the uh, this black box, you know, for those of you who have not actually seen the projected images you know the sketchups for this project it's sort of this this enormous black cube in the desert at burning man within which there's this gorgeous bizarre virtual reality interactive installation that i'll let you talk about in a bit but like the the notion that uh that you mentioned in the reality sandwich interview that that this black box is sort of like the the 2001 monolith or like the black box of a plane that there is this this horizon like you're saying it's like is it a black hole is it a white hole so well, uh, what, I, what i like i think about a black box that besides what i what i wrote and which is true it has a lot of spiritual meaning it meanings it has technological meanings but at the same time for me it almost feels like that's a funny i think with the black box or black hole white hole it almost feels like a blank slate. It's like a tabula rasa. It is, in a way, it's white. It's black, but it could have been, I mean, it could not have been white. It's black. But in a way, it's a black box is nothing, and it's everything at the same time. So that's that's the thing, right? Because this notion of virtual reality as a frontier and the way that this project is inviting people into 
the consideration of that in a way the fact that it's happening at burning man is just completely perfect because burning man itself is itself a kind of black box in that respect or the white box you know the the playa is this space and and it's strange I don't know. I don't know how deeply this has figured into your considerations of the project, but there's this notion that that empty desert expanse as a tabula rasa within which people have projected their own exteriorized virtual realities and built all of these amazing things and really used it as a playground for the imagination, much in the same way that people are are projecting their dreams and visions into these new media spaces that we're creating in virtual reality. But the playa as a, as a white hole is not actually an empty canvas. I mean, it's, it's a wet weather lake. It's, it's got creatures that are like dormant and asleep underneath it. And it has all of these ecological sensitivities. So I'm curious if you've thought much about the way that much as we in the United States, anyway, we, as we marched westward uh, under this kind of insane banner of, of manifest destiny into what we were calling the frontier, it wasn't actually a frontier. There were people living there already. And what was unfamiliar to us, what was unknown to us was already this sort of mature ecosystem. And so, you know, there's there's this relationship between virtual reality and psychedelics that people like Android Jones have been exploring that makes me wonder if in our exploration of what it is that we can manifest into these spaces, if we aren't in some way causing an ecological catastrophe of the imagination, you know, that there's stuff there already and we're paving over it. Since you've been talking, there's so many thoughts in my mind. First, I was thinking uh, the moment people went into this new frontier and they went into the desert, it's the black rock desert. So they saw a black, I imagine a black, so maybe this box is the black rock in the black rock. uh, Because I don't think there's a real black rock, but now there finally is a black rock. But also with imagination, and I think it's such a difficult question because when I read books like Neuromancer and Snowcress, I mean, these books are like 30 years, I think. Snowcrest, uh, Neuromancer is yeah, 30 years old. The other one is like 26 or 27 years old. And there was no, there wasn't, this other world did not exist yet. But then the question is, and I think that's, I, I've been thinking about that recently, but, and it's like almost an impossible one to answer but is it that there's somehow that there was already this world and these people tapped into it? Or did they, because they imagined something, was that the reason that it became real? Because I often feel like sometimes, um, I, I mean, I know artists often have these big egos because they think like it's amazing what they thought of. But in a way, I think there is this kind of consciousness that artists have antennae that somehow they can tap into. But on the other hand, so maybe it was already there, but we saw it. And on the other hand, but once you write about it, that means you also write it into existence. But that's the difficult question because you don't know what would have happened if, like if Brave New World never would have been written, because I think it's such a visionary book. When I look at the world now and I go like, fuck, this has been, I don't know how many, it's like 80 years ago. And we're almost getting there. I mean, give it another 20, 30 years. And now I see we might be going into that world. But then again, also, you know, that I mean, so many people have written, have uh, read that book that it's, I don't know, it's, it's a very fascinating question for me, imagination, like, and once imagination becomes real, is that ruining imagination or is there still this endless, I guess, imagination is like an endless unknown territory. I think we, we think we might've discovered it, but if we look, I don't know, and it's, it's even with music, and I'm sure people think like, "Oh, we know everything now," but then in 50 years, I'm I'm pretty sure that, uh, I mean, there will be some awesome art created that we can't even imagine how that will look like. There's that uh, that notion that virtual reality is sort of the 21st century opera, that that opera 
contained, like it transcended and included all of these other art forms and that it, it transformed the original relationship with theater where theater was, it was more on the level between the, the stage and the audience. And there was, there was more play and interaction between those two domains. And then opera became this sort of grand artistic vision that was held in a particular space that actually severed the relationship that existed between the actors and the and the the spectators but yeah, what's what's so interesting about opera that now when we go to an opera we're supposed to sit in total silence for four hours five hours and watch it back then it was just like going to a club because i mean that's what i what i read and it's very interesting why they also the way operas are built up it's in the beginning it's most interesting and most is happening because then the audience wasn't drunk yet <laughs> and at a certain point, it would just become like this giant pop crawl or something. And uh, so that's also fascinating how that evolved. It was just part of life. And then, I mean, now the way we look, but I also think with every art form, there is this moment when it's truly alive and it's it's all happening. And then, and nobody knows where it's going. And I, I always love these moments. I think that's that's a constant kind of in my life. That's when I got involved in the beginning of the house scene when that started, the whole electronic dance scene. There were no rules because it was all new. So it was evolving. And then after a certain point, everything becomes a concept. And then you're supposed to act in a certain way. Yeah, um, yeah that, that's, you know, to to relate that to the virtual reality thing. It's been fascinating for me to watch the way that filmmakers are trying to make sense of this new medium that they know that you don't have the ability to direct someone's attention in the same way that you used to when you were pointing the camera at a particular thing and it was focused at a particular focal length and now if you in a in a totally spherical environment or you know a rectilinear expanse in virtual reality you have this you know someone can turn their head and look around and it doesn't trap a person in that same way but it also there are new modes and methods that people who are creating in this space are using to direct the attention or like control the narrative structure of the experience. So what I love about this moment when you're talking about it is that there are no rules yet. There isn't like nobody figured out how it should work. And that's what I, maybe it's also the, the anarchistic Daniel inside of me, but I love it when there are no rules and you have to, you just, you're, you're, you have to deal with a situation. Something is happening and nobody told you like, this is how you're supposed to do it. And then, then you have to figure it out. And I'm sure at a certain point, we will have figured it out. And then it just becomes, I don't know, kind of, I mean, there will still be amazing stuff that's being made, but it's in a way kind of business as usual. I always like these beginning stages when it's total chaos. And I mean, nobody knows where this will be in two years or in, in six months. And you're talking about that there's this 360 environment. But what if in the future we'll be walking through a movie? Mm. And we're not bound to looking around, but it's 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 like life because with life you're not bound. I can now uh, I don't know now I'm sitting behind my computer, but next moment I go out on the street and uh, I don't know there I don't know is there a story to life? That's kind of also interesting because we're trying to figure out if there's a story or a narrative. But most of the time I always like to say that uh, life is what's happening while the universe is busy fucking up your other plans. <laughs> yeah. So I, I don't know if there's a big story. So to kind of weave that back with Brave New World and this, this notion of treating the human being as a system of inputs and outputs and controlling us by the levers and switches of our own neurochemistry and the way that our attentional systems are, you know, designoid systems are constructed by the evolutionary process. There seems like 
the new system is like there is a narrative in life sort of like you and I are both sitting in front of this very shiny box and it has our attention because it's so shiny you know in the same way that the campfire uh, used to capture our attention we now the phones capture our attention you've made some really fabulous artwork all of these extraordinary cartoons that poke fun at and satirize our relationship with technology and I'll, I'll post some in the show notes but this notion of us being hypnotized by the by the way that our own perceptual systems uh, can be understood and that seems to be sort of what you're pointing to is that as this anarchistic open creative empty space becomes understood that what we're what we're learning is something about the way that our own values are not just sort of derived from nothing but are rooted in this entire context or, or structure of what has been his, like historically important to us throughout our evolution and that those those things are going to continue to influence the you know however invisibly the even the questions that we're asking about these new spaces yeah but what's also interesting when you mentioned the campfire i think it's also for me this whole black box it's not that i i have no clue what it's about so the moment it came into existence it's kind of this thing in your mind that starts and then other people got involved so there's Avinas, there's a guy who has a, a VR company, and I started talking with him, and then it, it kept evolving. And I keep discovering more stuff. And what I discover now that it's also very much about the art of storytelling, because we realize that we don't want people with phones or cameras inside the box, because inside the box, we're going to recreate what's out there. But if somebody's going to show us a photo... And nowadays, we think that a photo exactly shows how something is. That's reality. But it's, I don't know, it's just a surface. And still what I love, that stories, they, maybe stories show reality at, at, in a much more realistic way. Because they also, there's, when people live, I mean, they've gone through 30, 40, 50 years of experiences of, and that's, uh, what's this beautiful saying? Like, we don't see the world as it is, but as we are. And somehow, I think the, the, the fire, when you look into a fire, you can see everything. But even with, with images, uh, and maybe VR can do that, that since it's not, it's not so clear, it's not like a movie where you're watching, it's like life, and you go through it, and maybe we go through the same experience, but we will all experience it in a different way. And how can we, I don't know, tell someone else how that experience looks like? When people come in the box and they'll tell us how it looks outside, I like that there is this element of their reality, how they perceive it. And when they show us a photo, if a thousand people take a photo of something, I mean, it will look different. But then you still don't know because you see an object, especially like at Burning Man, and a lot of objects, there is an experience bound to it. People have experienced something there. And I, I like stories. And I think stories, whatever will happen, if it's VR or if, if it's storytelling at a campfire, I mean, stories... You never know. Uh, I mean, forever doesn't exist, but I believe they'll kind of exist forever. Mm. So in that sense, you have this this sort of, uh, <laughs> I would call it almost like a, a cubist approach to the cube. Yeah. It's like this is seeing it from all of these different perspectives. And that's been fascinating to me for years, this notion that, uh, you know, Ken Wilber actually talks about this. He says reality isn't made out of particles and it's not made out of ideas it's made out of perspectives and that an idea is a perspective and a particle is a perspective and that they could be perspectives on the same thing. And that he has this notion that nothing is no perspective is completely wrong, that it has an intrinsic truth to it, but that when it comes to understanding what we in our sort of layman's sense of the word call reality, that that's a very different kind of reality than the intrinsic reality of every perspective and you say also you said this a couple times in respect to this project all realities are real but some are more real than others so it almost it almost sounds like you are uh, there's a part of you maybe opposed to the anarchist in there that's already ready to you know yeah, start putting fences honest, up in this space 
To be honest, I reread that quote. That quote was one of the first. It's just that I love George Orwell so much. <laughs> but in a way, it's I, I I I don't know if that's. I mean, it's an it's a cool quote because it's uh, it's like material to discuss and for conversation. But in a way, I feel more and more that all all realities are real. Or and actually, what's fascinating now that I think because of the internet, people probably twenty twenty five years ago thought that the world would be way clearer and more defined because we could find all the facts. But what's interesting now that it's almost impossible to still find any facts or any facts that we agree on with the internet. This, I think this project also very much deals with if we hear now about fake news. And But then again, what is fake news? Because how how can I find the truth on the internet when because of the filter bubble the internet will only show me that what i already believe in so in a way i look up something and i have a discussion with someone else who believes in very different things and while we have this discussion we'll, we'll both look up facts on our phone and i mean we'll i'll just go like look these these are the facts they're showing that i'm telling the truth and this other guy will go like look what i found this is the truth it's there, there's this beautiful saying uh, of Rumi, uh, the, the Iranian uh, poet, mm. that God had a mirror, which I'm, I'm probably misquoting it, uh, but approximately, uh, what is it? You can better be approximately wrong than precisely, no, precisely wrong, approximately right than precisely wrong. <laughs> I'll try to be approximately right. That he had a mirror and that was the truth. And then he gave it to the people and the people... I mean, they dropped the mirror and it broke and everybody picked up a piece of the mirror and said, I have the truth. And I think that's universal. Mm. It's still true. But now it's now people are convinced that they have the truth because they have that piece of the mirror that shows them how it is. But somebody else has this other mirror. So do you think do you hold out much hope that there is I mean, what, what, what you're describing to me sounds like the epistemological nightmare of deconstructive postmodernism to use a bunch of $5 words like that. We're at a point now where even in the sciences, there is so much new information being produced every day about any particular domain of inquiry, any field of knowledge that even the experts in that field can't possibly keep up with the state of their own science. And so when you're talking about relying on secondary sources for understanding, then even the experts that we're looking to for authority on this stuff, the honest ones admit that they've lost the plot. Like the honest ones are like, well, we, I don't even know what's going on anymore. And so like, you, what, what, what's on the other side of that, though? But even maybe those that have really, I don't know, that are delving so deep into it and their their whole life is obsessed by discovering this one or by one tiny part of science, maybe they might have some understanding, but who can understand what they're saying? It's like, who can translate? And it's I think this, this informational overload we have is just, and it's growing and it's just, so I'm really curious where that will go because I mean, how much more information can we handle? I think there is this, I don't, again, it's, I don't know what the real fact is, but I think nowadays, if you read the New York Times, then in one day you get more information than an average person uh, got in his whole life in the 19th century. But I mean, now when people are constantly on their phone and when, I mean, uh, I don't know, when you're on the airplane, in the library, wherever, uh, waiting, everybody's constantly scrolling. So they're just getting, but I don't know what they're getting. They're just getting input all the time. But where's the time to think about it or where's this time to try to get a bigger picture of the world? Hmm. I mean, so when I when I think forward into because this is a major issue. I mean, this this issue is at the root of the problems, the chaos, the turbulence uh, of this social cohesion of modern human civilization like we. We can't even agree on whether it's, for example, uh, Francisco Varela, the biologist and cyberneticist in 1970s, he was Chilean and he was there in Chile during the revolution. And he said 
that listening to the radio, you'd you'd flip between two stations, and one station would say right before the revolution happened. He said one station would say it's sunny outside. And then you'd flip and the other station would say it's raining outside in the same place. Uh-huh. It's, it seems like it seems like that's what we're going through right now. And, and you know, so I wonder, like, yeah, but what if there were two stations? What if, like, you have two billion stations and they go, there's this whole range between raining and sunny. And, uh, and, and how will you ever and there's nobody to ask, like, uh, I don't know, because nobody knows even about which station you're talking. Right. So. So the question, I guess, for me is, and I think this is this is something I hear a lot of people puzzling over. It's like, it seems pretty obvious, like you're saying that one person, each of us can't individually come to an understanding that makes sense of all of this. Like, it just we're just not built for it. You know, there's just our brains are so small. The Internet is so big. But if we. Do you think that that there's some sort of light at the end of the tunnel in terms of the way that we're able to connect into some like a larger individual? It's almost like you're talking about the humans that will all together function as a kind of supercomputer. Well, yeah, like well, like a super organism. But in a, in a way, I I love, and I think that's again the the probably the anarchist in in me which will never die. Uh, <laughs> But it's it's just I love people and I love the fact that they're all different. But on the other hand, again, when we look at books, and uh, I think it's fascinating that recently I thought about the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and uh, that's uh, I mean Douglas Adams I read it a long time ago, but he wrote at a certain point that the the mice they were like using the the Earth as a kind of supercomputer to figure out what life was all about. And I go like, damn, that's that's kind of where we're maybe going. I mean, if, again, with, uh, I don't know, the Neuroist company by Elon Musk, if we all get, like, part artificial brains and we can all connect together, yeah, then maybe we will figure out the answer. But is life about the answer or aren't there, like, zillions of answers? Maybe, like, in a few years we'll all be connected and then we'll figure out the answer is 42. But then go like, <laughs> but then what? Well, that's that's Kevin Kelly in his latest book. He says that answers are getting cheap, that answers are getting they're ap- approaching free. So the things that it, the the economy is going to flip, or it's flipping right now, and that the real value is in the questions, yeah. is and in I asking thought, more valuable questions. So, yeah, and I think that's this this box is a kind of computer. It's I mean, my dad is a scientist and he's really, we have lots of discussions about this. Also, the black box in science is a very known thing. But in a way, it's, I'm not there to give the answer. It's just like, it's raising this question. It's very interesting to see. It's not that I think like, okay, when I do this, then after a week, I'll get this answer. Or it's just like, you have no idea what will happen. But it will, it will also, I think, help people to understand that they should question everything. I mean, questions is what it's all about, because it's not the answers. Yeah, that's that's so easy. If you just want to, I think the word research is about searching. And it's not refined. So, what are the particular burning questions that you feel emerging out of this particular black box supercomputer made out of virtual reality technology and people? Yeah, I think the one uh, we talked about for the past. Uh, a few minutes and it's just like understanding that maybe there it's so difficult to find out facts and this is a very this is a very small test it's just like we're inside and we're trying to figure out how it looks outside based on information so it's for people pretty easy to see like what information we get in and compare it to the fact outside but still they realize that the fact outside that's what i hope is not a fact because in the beginning, also, this project is evolving constantly. First, it was just about painting what's outside. But now I think it's more and more interesting that we'll also write down the stories. I think the stories, together with how it looks outside, it's creating, it's not mirroring the, 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 the reality outside, but it's, I don't know, it's, it's kind of creating this new reality, which in a way might be more real than what's outside. So if people are outside, they can take photos and they can show, post them on Facebook. But when they're inside, they might maybe understand what Burning Man was about for them. 
because there is this kind of condensed reality inside. Because in the beginning, I also said jokingly to people, I know like a year and a half ago, I said I would never go, ever in my life go back to Burning Man. <laughs> I wouldn't like to say goodbye. I made this kind of gold dollar sign intertwined with a Burning Man logo. We did champagne openings and I was definitely done with it. <laughs> and then I told myself, okay, but now you still can say you, you're never going there anymore because you're in the box. So you're not a Burning Man. First, I thought that would be a question. Will we be at Burning Man or not? But now I actually have the feeling that this might be my most Burning Man year ever, that inside the box might be more Burning Man than outside. So that's, yeah, that's an important part of this project to explain to people is that you and your team are locking yourselves inside of this thing for the entire week. Like you, you're there with like a porta potty inside (laughs) this box. And so in a way, it's this weird recapitulation of Burning Man as a microcosm of the planetary ecology of mind, which is itself a a sort of recapitulation of this Cartesian homunculus, like the little man inside your head. Like you've got like this little team of, it's like, did you see uh, the Disney movie? It just, what was it? Inside Out or where the, it's like no, they go inside of. the girl's head and it's all of the little emotional subroutines. Yeah, I've heard about I know that there's like every figure is standing for an emotion, but I haven't seen it. Yeah. But so I mean, so that's that is actually a, an interesting question of like, are you are you have you basically like one Burning Man by doing this? Like you've you've out Burning Man, Burning Man. <laughs> And this is the this is it, right? Like we're at that we're at this critical juncture in the history of the planet where we see that everything is a work of creativity. Like you know, like James Lovelock's Gaia hypothesis that he says even back when it was just bacterial slime coating the surface of the planet that the atmosphere was still something it, it wasn't just there and we were living in it. Like it was something that life created in order to sustain itself. And so like we live in this atmosphere of ideas that we assume are just given, but we're actually involved in it, in its creation. So I don't know. I, I don't know what I'm asking you. <laughs> but, I, like that, I don't know. The outburns burning men. I, I like it that maybe I was thinking while you were talking that also, uh, since this world is so big and there's so much information, we can try to under to even gather more and more and more and more information in order to understand something. But here we're kind of really limited, limiting ourselves. And and by doing that, maybe we might actually like, for instance, understand Burning Man, because the amount of information we get in is it's not limited because there will still be a lot of people coming in, but it, it's in comparison, it's limited. And it might give us a better understanding of what it actually is out there because it's not being blurred by all these images of people partying, of artworks. It's maybe going to the essence of what Burning Man is. And it's the same I've been often thinking, like in Amsterdam, uh, where I live, there's so much tourism now. And then you see people, they go to the Heineken experience and uh, all these. uh, and, and, And I don't know, they're standing for three hours in line. And when people go to a city, it's just like they take photos of all the touristy, uh, it's like the bucket list. But if you go to a place and maybe if you haven't seen any building, but you've met this amazing person or you've gone through an amazing experience, doesn't that give you a better understanding of that city than just seeing everything that's there? Mm. That's kind of what we're doing now by limiting. I won't be distracted by all these people, by these gorgeous people partying, by people doing amazing stuff, by... It's just I can focus kind of on what Burning Man is. Or maybe not. Maybe I'll go crazy after two days. (laughs) Well, that's 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 an interesting thing. It kind of seems to be related to, you know, John Lilly's experiments with uh, the flotation tanks. And, you know, he he says it's not. A few few months ago, I was for four hours in a flotation tank. Ooh, tell me about that. How was that for you? It seems so related. You climb into the box. Yeah, it's funny that you talk about it now because I did that actually at the, around the time when I started thinking about this project. But I didn't, uh, I mean, it's not until now that I, I've, I've never thought about the relation, but I did. I did this kind of experiment where they asked a group of creative people because normally you can't go longer than an hour and a half in these centers that you have now with floating tanks. 
And we did in a month like uh, an hour session, a one and a half hour, a two hour session, a night session, and a four hour session. And it's pretty, uh, I think especially, uh, I think flotation tanks actually now, in this period of time, they are probably more valuable than ever. Mm. Yeah, so there's like, you're a guy who is making art about virtual reality, but doesn't have a television in your house. Yeah. So like, in some sense, you're, you've sort of answered at least one of the questions that you're asking, I think, which is, how do we navigate in a world where we're overwhelmed and overstimulated. Like I was just hearing this thing about how this was on the note to self podcast, uh, WNYC's note to self. And they were saying that the phone notifications that people get more phone notifications now to the degree that the kind of people that were disrupted on a regular basis by notifications before smartphones the only people that were living in that kind of constant stimulation were emergency response, like like police telephone operators and airport air traffic control operators, and that those were considered the most insane, high-stress jobs you could possibly have. And now all of us are doing that job 24 hours a day. It was like what I told you in the beginning when I started this conversation with you on Skype and my phone was in front of me. I put my phone somewhere else. Because, I mean, I knew I, I can have a conversation with you and my phone will be here, but it will distract part of my brain. Mm. And the moment notification comes in, I might just check it. And then I actually, especially with this conversation, I'm already lost sometimes. But I mean, then <laughs> I'll be lost constantly because you answer. But it's also, I think, for creativity and everything. Some, I mean, sometimes it's great. And now since... To be honest, this is a pretty intense time because we're doing a crowdfunding for the project. And for this crowdfunding, I need to be on social media a lot, online a lot. But I already noticed since I have to be a lot on my phone, I'm going there more often. I do believe it's really addictive. But like if I want to come up with an idea or write a text or what I now often do is even I will go to a cafe with I have my sketchbook. And, and I'll just sit down with a piece of paper and a pen in this so I can... But it's actually it's not it's not often fun doing that. It's 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 like that black hole. So you're in you're something and then you're there and actually you go like you know what I don't you you can't figure out you know there's something in your brain you're trying to find it but it's difficult and then it's like so easy to just go online and see some cool funny video or it's it's so difficult to I think but then again I don't know if it's different than before because i know and in america it's way more but here in the netherlands people on average like 20 years ago would watch three and a half hours of television each day and now it will be even more but there always have been writers and people who can focus and i think it's just and that's what this project how it started that was more looking at this technological reality versus real reality whatever real <laughs> human reality and I mean, it is real, the reality of our phones, and it's here, and it's totally, and I mean, without a computer, how could I have this conversation with you and Skype? So that's that's awesome. But on the one hand, so we have, sometimes I think it's great to be on your phone and on your computer and everything, but on the other moments, we should realize, okay, now, but now it's still kind of easy, and that's where we're also, I think a lot of people don't realize where we're going, because I wasn't surprised when Elon Musk came up with his neural so, but I think eventually, and you're reading more and more about this, a lot of companies, they don't want anymore that there will be the separation. So we have VR, we have phones, we have computers, and we have our lives. No, we'll have implants, and it'll be there all the time. And and then, I mean, how can you be in a floating tank when the internet is in your brain? <laughs> Ouch. Yeah, that's that's a rough one. Like, well, I've actually had this conversation with a couple friends that even with the phone off, you're still... For the last hundred years or, well, what, 1913, we've been, uh, every human being has been immersed in radio broadcast, like transmissions, yeah. like radio waves are, have been penetrating our flesh from the moment of conception for our entire lives. And so, and electrical fields from transformers like we're inside the machine already and so the machine entering us is actually not that big of a, a leap like we're actually in this thing where 
I was having this this thought is like maybe a flotation tank isn't enough. Maybe we actually have to build a Faraday cage, you know, so that you can go into this room of your house where the, it's it's actually blocking uh, electromagnetic radiation from even entering the room, and you can you can have your own thought for the first time of, in your whole life. Yeah, I think that would be great. <laughs> so, I mean, do you, do you see this as like, do you see this as, you know, maybe the, the real new unknown territory is silence is actually, it's not what's inside the box per se. It's a box with nothing in it. And that that's, that's like out of that comes all of the, the wealth of our lives. Yeah, maybe that would be solid mission 2.0. So I come back next year, but then I'll just be inside the box and the box will be closed. And, not, <laughs> and nobody will even know if I'm there or not. And then there's this obviously very interesting philosophical question. Like did a tree fall if nobody heard the noise <laughs> of the tree falling down? But now it's like, so if you're in this box, but you're not connected with the outside world, then do you exist? Do you actually exist when you don't tweet or when you don't? Uh, it, it almost feels like people sometimes nowadays, they, they just, if they haven't posted that they've been somewhere, then they feel have they been somewhere. But I, I go, I think often, if you post that you've been somewhere, have then I don't know if you've been there because you somehow were distracted. Mm. You only go to places when you don't post about them. So each time somebody posted that they were somewhere, you go like, oh, you weren't there because look, you posted. So that's an interesting thing. There's this guy, uh, Nathan Jurgensen, who is the, he was a social media theorist and a consultant. He's, he's on the team at Snapchat. He's been for a couple of years and he's been poking at these same questions. And one of the shapes that his work has taken is in deconstructing this notion or, or rather, you know, criticizing this notion of digital dualism. You know, that life is different when you're on the phone or like that, that the phone is a different reality, that the, that the Internet is a different reality. But he's got a slightly different angle than you because he's saying that our obsession with photography isn't a lack of presence. It's not that we're not there in that moment. It's that we are there and somewhere else because we're sharing the experience with somebody who's not geographically co-tangent or whatever like they i think that's again this whole thing with realities they all are real and i, I don't think it's what what I, the quote is all realities are real but some are more real than others is just untrue it's, <laughs> it's it's fake news i guess but it's more it's it's all real but it's different mm. i mean the reality of you being on your phone is real and sharing it with someone that is a reality if you're somewhere and you want to share it but if you go through an intense immersive experience, that means you can't be on your phone because then you'll miss it. So they're two different experiences. And obviously, they both are real. I mean, if somebody visits Amsterdam and, and walks around here, then who am I to say, like, no, you haven't been to Amsterdam because you haven't had, like, this kind of experience. And this other guy might say, I don't know, you, you haven't been to Amsterdam or Berlin because you went out all night in a club and you didn't even see Berlin by daylight. I mean, a lot of people go to Berlin, they go to the Berghain, they, I mean, what, so you go to this techno club, you stay in there for 24 hours, get wasted like hell, crawl out again, go to the airport and go back. And then somebody would tell you like, you haven't been to Berlin. No, you have been to Berlin, but you had another experience than that guy that just woke up early in the morning and, and went to the zoo or the, I don't know, went to see all these great galleries with art and took photos of them. Both of you were in Berlin. But it's but in a different way. So, and I think if you take photos, it just is very different because for a moment, you st when when you're doing something, or it's not like that. If James Bond is in a movie and suddenly he goes like, "Oh, but that's there, this is a cool action shot," and then he 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 stands still for a moment, takes a photo, <laughs> and keeps on running it again. No, because you're totally in the moment. Mm, so flow states. That's actually that feels like a thing I've been watching come up a lot lately that that we one of these 
possible yes, solutions. Say what? Really, the Russian guy was the really long, difficult name who oh, wrote yeah. it. Mikhail CZ yeah. something. Six yeah. fizzle men, mental skittles. Yeah, he. Exactly. And then also Jamie Wheel, who also lives here in Austin and, and recently wrote a book called Stealing Fire about flow states. And it seems like this is a potential solution to this question. Like maybe the way for us to deal with information overload is the problem is not properly understood. The problem is that we're trying to run the sort of like James Bond death defying obstacle course at the same time as we're trying to Snapchat the thing. And uh, who who is it that wants to Snapchat this action sequence? And if you get rid of, like when James Bond is, is like skiing down with a machine gun or whatever, he's not James Bond. He's just the action. You know, there's nobody there. He's completely absorbed in the activity. So I've been wondering lately if the way that we ad have to adapt to these information rich environments is by getting our personalities out of the way. Like you just, you might have to, this is sort of a terrifying thought, but who is it terrifying to, right? Uh, it's terrifying to the guy who's me and learning that I actually, in order to go to work in some robot factory or whatever, and like not get killed, I have to stay totally present which means that in the in another 10 or 20 years maybe the employer that I work for will have to will like give me some like helmet that turns my ego off so that I'm just like fully present and that kind of gets back to your your now clock your circular wristband that you know that maybe the problem is that we're so preoccupied with narrative and so preoccupied with history and and prediction and who we think we are that we can't actually like maybe the real the real real it, that, that there is a real real but it's not it's not something that can be understood through this the interpretive lens of the self yeah i don't know but that's kind of brave new world if we look at that i mean people are being kind of bred to become like an alpha or a beta or gamma or like a certain type of person and they also when they are that person they know these other people exist, these other types, but they are so happy that they're not these other types because this type is truly fulfilling who they are. And But I mean, it's all Im implanted. And now, I mean, what's kind of weird about this whole filter bubble in uh, technological reality? So somehow, okay, Facebook, Google, the internet, whatever the internet is, they know who I am because they say now that based on 150 likes, they know better than your parents how you are and with 300 likes analyzing them better than your wife or life partner. But I mean, uh, at a certain point they go like, okay, this is Daniel. And then I have to stay like that for the rest of my life. But now it's at this age because I grew up without computers kind of, but at a, at a moment I feel like, okay, so people get born and then it already gets defined. Like when they're one month old, okay, you're this type. So we're only, I mean, we're going to push you in that direction because that's who you are. So that's also kind of frightening. At what age will Facebook or will the Internet decide what type of person you are? Mm. I saw this woman pushing a stroller the other day and the stroller had a built in iPod, like an iPad stand on it. Like the kid, this kid wasn't even old enough to reach the thing. And she was already putting the screen in front of the kid. And it's like, you know. Yeah, I think because I have a kid who is 11. And I think it's one of the biggest challenges of being a, a, a parent nowadays is like dealing with kind of the the iPad and, and realizing, okay, you can be on your phone. You can do lots of stuff. But there's also this other real stuff. But then again, it's it's just it's not about telling someone that they, they're not allowed to do something. But it is, I mean, it's great. It's a great addition to our lives. But once you're only on that screen and it's, it's just so, so addictive. Because now then, now it's the first time that I see that our kids addicted. And there was this article in the New York Post and it's, it's even like more addictive than cocaine or heroin. But it actually, it, it does, it does trigger the exact same part of your brain. 
So what are you but doing? I mean, as a, what are you doing as a father then in this? I mean, how do you actually like? What does this look like in terms of the way that you're actually raising your your child? I don't know. Take take your kids to yeah, where we met at Boom Festivals, or yeah. for two weeks there's a place where there's no Wi-Fi, no phones, and actually you can see that it's a place that's really cool. I think once you you know. But it's also, I think, what you mentioned about the flow state, maybe there is an information state where it's really cool to process all that information, read, see stuff. But then you also need this other state where kind of it becomes part of your, of you as a person and you can start using it in life. But if you just keep putting information in, you'll never get to that flow state. You just become like, I mean, it's like the couch potato, but you'll become an, in, an information potato. <laughs> I think that's a good word. Yeah, that's actually... Uh, I feel like I've seen something like that in one of your cartoons. No, like a, but maybe that's the word of the po- podcast, the information. <laughs> yes, today. No, but it's like working with your kid. It's, I don't know, it's just doing stuff with him. And when our friends, like now he's again into playing with Lego and, and Lego and we're, we're building this house and there's all this room. It's also about... It's, it's, I think it's the same as storytelling and imagination. That you have something in front of you which is not already, it's not ready. It's not, it's not there. You can still fill in the gaps. It's, I think, with Amsterdam, when I grew up here and when this whole, the, the dance scene started and there were all these illegal parties. And I mean, there was so much room to explore and just do stuff without rules. It's still, that's, I think we talked about it in the beginning where there's, there is this moment where there are no rules yet. And now the city is everything. Else. And it's not only Amsterdam. It's like San Francisco. It's everywhere. It has become so expensive. Everything is laid out. And uh, I think you need it. Also with Lego, I mean, there's the Lego with all the, the blocks. But it's just like a puzzle. Nowadays, you have to build this Star Wars spaceship. And then when you're when you've done it according to the booklet, then it looks cool. But I think it's way cooler when you just have a bunch of blocks and there are no rules and you can just start building and you don't know what will happen. That was a big deal with Lego. I remember a couple of years ago, like parents were complaining about that. And so they actually started releasing the bucket with no instructions again. Yeah. So, I mean, I should, I mean, if I'm now looking at this house that he's been building with friends and it has like these secret passages and uh, revolving doors uh, behind, I don't know, uh, fireplaces. And it's, it's just so you can make your own, you can become James Bond. I mean, in your mind, you can become everything. And I think it's just so great because if you want to, I don't know, tap into being yourself or whatever, you need to you also need that moment where you're just inside your own, even if we are inside a supercomputer and there's radio waves, you're still inside yourself and you're not being guided by, indeed, like if I would be talking now with you and having this phone and seeing all the, I mean, life is more than just notifications. That's, that's a fine pull quote on that one too. <laughs> so you talked about that you started this conversation talking about the idea for this project emerging out of this state of rest and it reminded me of uh, maria popova of brain pickings talking about the value of boredom and how if you don't give yourself time to be bored then you never hear that the voice inside of you that tells you who you are i mean so all of these, I mean, this is like so key to your question of like, at what point does the internet decide who you will become? But that's what, what Eric Smith, uh, CEO of Google, he already said it a few years ago. He said, I don't think that people want to be going to Google to find answer, but going to Google to tell them what they should be doing next. Yeah. So, I mean, do you give yourself time? Do you actively seek out boredom in your life or like... It's not boredom, but it's, I think that's also the reason why I, yeah, there's this obviously beautiful saying that we only can live our lives forward, but only understand it looking backwards. I see there's this kind of pattern where I always do something which I'm not capable of doing, which is new and I'm learning. And then, then when I know how it works or I've done this project, then I just quit doing it. And I don't know what I will be doing next, which is like probably financially and socially in a lot of ways, it's like the biggest horror ever. But I also realized then I go into the state of this black hole, but it's, I, I stopped calling it a black hole because it has this negative connotation, but it sometimes means you'll just be lying on your couch for two, three days and you have no, you have no idea what you're going to do, what you want to do. 
and and there is no easy solution because it's not that I know like okay I'll be for a week on my couch really desperate and then after exactly a week four hours and two minutes I will <laughs> idea. it can happen after four days it can happen after two months and you don't know you you have no clue but I think but that's so the moment it happens it's no fun it's kind of it's horrible it's it's just it's definitely no fun. it's way more fun to just uh, hang out and, and, and do cool stuff. But I always, looking back, I realized these are the moments when it all happened. I mean, everything that I came up with in my life happened in those moments. It's when you can eat kind of, you're not distracted and you really, you don't know anything and you go, you kind of go deep into yourself. And it's somewhere, uh, it's somewhere there. Have you had... Actually, when you feel bad like that and friends call you, and sometimes... It's also, you know, there is something and you really want to do it. And they go like, oh, let's go out and get drunk or I don't know what. And that feels so like, yeah, yeah, let's. But it's like turning on a television. I think it's, there's this other beautiful saying, I don't know who said it, that says that um, art is about focusing our attention and entertainment is about distracting our attention. Whoa. So that actually, that I had one more question for you. Um and it was again it was related to something that you said on reality sandwich which you said in a way virtual reality seems to be similar to and offer the same options as drugs do we use virtual reality in an escapist hedonist way or will we try to use it to learn more about and enhance our real world adding an extra layer of reality in the process so like it seems like right now, most of virtual reality is this huge land grab. It's very commercial. It's, I mean, it, because it's high technology, it requires a lot of money for people to develop. You know, you have to be able to buy the HTC Vive or whatever. I've been to Android Jones's barn where he's, he's he and Anson Fong are working on the Microdose VR, and it's a it's a laboratory in there. There's so much equipment, and I just wonder if you think, like, if you think that using VR for contemplative self-discovery and philosophical inquiry even stands a chance given the fact that the commercial factors of it are so significant in this. I don't know, but that's, that's one of the reasons I really wanted to do this uh, project when it initially started that I thought like, okay, this is kind of the chance to look at something which felt that almost like with internet, like with social media, with smartphones would just be money driven to have a way to look at it from a, a human perspective, because I think that's so important. But then again, you see that it's, I mean, it's really difficult. We're doing the crowdfunding and raising money for it. And in the beginning, I had some hope that also like people from the tech industry would, but I mean, for them, it's just, this is just questioning. So that's pretty difficult because it's not like a showcase of VR. I know like a lot of projects at Burning Man, I mean, it's easy because to get money, because even if they'll like, I mean, put a black label over the logos, it's still like a showcase. It's showing how great this is. And then it's getting people hooked on it. This is not about, it's it's also not about being good or bad. But I think it's so important to raise these questions, especially since it's we have seen with internet and smartphones and social media, I mean, how big the, the impact on humanity is. So I think it definitely is, It's more. it's not only about technology. But like with, I don't know, and, and the comparison to drugs, but I think it's to, like, I didn't have a television forever, but I, there are some movies that have changed my life. There are books. I like, I never read books, but I, I, I love reading books, but I want books that I, I know I will, they will find me at the right moment. And then I go into them. And after that, my life is different than before. And I mean, that's, that's the same difference about just getting wasted at a house party or at a bar or doing some amazing uh, hallucinatory experience or reading those amazing books and seeing like amazing movies or just sitting every day or every evening on the couch as this information potato and just uh, because now I mean it's truly an information potato because you'll be zapping on your television with your left hand and in your right hand you will be at the same time scrolling your Facebook feed because I think that's what most people do in the evenings 
Yeah, uh, it's, although it's a little harder when your phone is also the remote control, I've noticed. <laughs> okay. I, I, to be honest, I, uh, I'm a layman in uh, Facebook and uh, watching the television at the same time. <laughs> and then again, maybe this is a flow state. I mean, zapping, zapping and scrolling at the same time is probably also kind of flow. It's just not my flow. That's an awesome place to wrap this up, man. Thank you so much for this conversation. I, I'm, I'm just delighted every time I get to talk to you. I think you're asking very valuable questions with your work. And I have to admit that I was not really planning to go back to Burning Man. I kind of had signed off on it myself. But your project is the most alluring thing I've heard about that festival in years. So uh, I, I, well, I wish you the best. If you want to join us in the box, then uh, <laughs> send me an email. Right on, man. Thanks a lot. Okay. Yo. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Be sure to subscribe to Future Fossils and leave us a review. It really helps us get these conversations into the ears of other people who will appreciate and benefit from them. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do that at patreon.com forward slash Michael Garfield. Be good to yourselves and have a beautiful century. We probably won't.